0: it's time for growing texas olives the only podcast made specifically for you the texas olive grower and probably still the only podcast in the world fully dedicated to just talking how to grow olives thanks for being here today I am your host, Steven Yannock. Well, it's the end of 2021. In fact, it's it's currently New Year's Eve today as, as we record uh, this final episode of 2021. I do feel bad I didn't get any more episodes out in December. Uh, I, I wanted to, of course. Uh, it was the end of semester and finals and... Uh, You know, the Christmas holiday and everything going on with the end of the year and and just it just didn't happen for me until now. But but here we are. So for the last episode of the uh, of the year, I just thought we would do sort of a year in review. Just talk about what what we saw in 2021, what happened, where we stand now and and maybe where we're going to go forward uh, as we look forward to the next year. So let's let's begin our review by by going back actually to the end of 2020. Let's think about uh, how we finished up 2020. Of course, 2020 was a, was a heck of a year on its own with its own challenges, but uh, in terms of olives, uh, wasn't a bad year, actually a pretty pretty decent year across the state. Uh, there was some good harvest that happened. We didn't have any severe uh, freeze damage at, in 2020. And so we had a fairly decent crop across the state. Uh at least in terms of Texas olive production <laughs> crops uh it was it was pretty good. It seems like uh you know a lot of orchards are were coming of age and and we had decent weather uh, in that winter before twenty twenty uh, to get the trees primed for flowering and fruiting and so we had a decent harvest so like I said across the state uh, pretty good, pretty good uh a lot of folks made fruit. Not as much as we wanted, of course. Never as much as we we want to make. We just haven't broken that barrier yet in Texas and really pushed our pushed our fruit yields. But that's what we're working on now. So then, moving forward and thinking about the winter of 2020 into 2021, you know, really, of course, the the freeze in February is is front and center on our minds. I'm I'm sure it's still there for me. And then um, as we approach January and February again, I'm getting nervous. But as far as uh, last year's winter, that 2020-2021 and 2021 winter, uh, it, it was really pretty good. Up until February, it was a really pretty good winter for olives. I kept, I kept texting a few of you saying, "Man, this is this is good olive weather." It was nice and mild. We had a few freezes and, and some some minor damage on some on some tender tips of leaves and, and twigs, uh, depending on location and management. But you know, nothing severe at least. Um, But pretty good weather uh, up until February. We had mild conditions. You know, we had some chilling. We had some cool weather to get the vernalization process going in the olives. And, man, everybody I talked to was just really stoked for 2021. Everybody felt like it was going to be their year. The weather was going just right. Seems like everybody I talked to finally had their orchards uh, in, in nice condition, really well managed, really well prepared for the 2021 season and then of course february uh the valentines winter storm yuri the the historic freeze whatever you want to call it um uh, we all know what happened february this 2021 and boy it wasn't good it was a a significant setback and and it was a historic freeze uh from from what i'd seen uh we hadn't had a freeze like that really since uh the late 80s i think it was 89 that we had a severe freeze uh that was very similar in severity to what we had in February. And that's interesting. So it happened about thirty years later, from eighty-nine to, to twenty one. Uh, and and when we I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more coming up in the next few episodes when we talk about vernalization and, and the winter needs of olive trees. But it's interesting to me because the the seminal work on olive adaptation to Texas was done in the in the mid 80s uh, by a master student at Texas A and M named James Denny. James Denny did his master's thesis on the potential adaptability of olives to Texas, and what he what he found we'll we'll talk about it in more detail in the next couple episodes. But basically, he said he delineated where olives could grow or might possibly be able to produce fruit in the state of Texas, and what he said in the 80s, before any olives were ever planted in Texas, is actually right where the olives are growing today. You know, Denny said north of a certain line, the trees are going to freeze too often every year and never are going to produce. And he also said south of a certain line in Texas, the trees will grow fine and won't freeze, but they won't get enough uh, cold weather to, to convince them to flower and set fruit. And that's exactly what has happened. Boy, he was he was really accurate um, with that early computer modeling in the 80s, uh, way before olives were ever planted in Texas. And I bring all this up and I think it's interesting because Denny, in his master's thesis, calculated a mathematical, although not necessarily climatological probability of a freeze that would kill olive trees to the ground in this olive-growing region of Texas, he, predict, he predicted it could happen once every 33 years. Well, 1989, that was, that was uh, what is that, 32 years ago. So he was rather spot on, I think. So everybody across the state experienced some type of severe damage uh, from the freeze, of course. But as might be expected, the severity of damage uh, varied across the state. And I've talked about this before, so I won't belabor the point, but... You know, we had everything from uh, some orchards farther up north that were just, you know, survive, survival was in the low uh, maybe 10%, 20% just total survival uh, af- after the freeze. And those orchards are, have, you know, removed those trees and are replanting. But, but on the majority, our more northern orchard sites, they were mostly killed to the ground, uh, I think, about 60 to 80% survival. Now, again, 100% top kill, everything killed to the ground, but 60 to 80% survival, meaning 60 to 80% of the trees regrew from the roots, and that's what a lot of folks. um, I I think I've said this before too, but I kind of draw a line on on Highway 90, US 90, that goes, of course, right through Hallettsville here where I am, and it goes all the way west. It's a nice straight line. Above that, north of north of Highway 90, uh, was mostly everything was top killed and killed all the way to the ground. Along this 90 corridor, you know, there were some mixed results. Uh, Some folks that that did have top kill to the ground, some folks with some significant total tree death and tree loss. Uh, And then you go down the road at a similar latitude still, and that orchard was just defoliated and, and lost very little of its canopy, had very little top death, actual death of the canopy. And so it's a a mixed bag, and I think a lot of that has to do with, of course, location and and the temperatures that we're experiencing, but also management. Management as far as irrigation, fertilization, pruning practices. Of course, we've talked all about about some of those and how those affect freeze tolerance already. But also soil type and just location within the state as far as uh, precipitation, I think, made a big difference. Uh, seems to me, on on a good average, those orchards that are in, in a let well okay, those orchards farther west seem to fare a little bit better because they they receive less rain on average, and so they stayed a little drier. And those trees tended to withstand the freezing uh, temperatures a little bit better than those orchards that were further east, uh, where they they tended to stay a little bit. Uh, the soil was a little more wet throughout the winter, and those trees seemed to receive a little bit more damage than than the others that were drier and the same thing goes for soil type so those orchards on a heavy uh, clay soil that holds a lot of water that holds a lot holds a lot of heat also tends to be warmer during the winter but the main thing is holds more water you know those sites those orchards that were on heavier clay soils those orchards tended to tended to receive more damage than, soil, than orchards on a sandier site, where those trees are a little more drought-stressed year-round and, and tended to be drier in the winter. So it was an interesting mix. Um, of course, everywhere I went, everybody said, well, no olives made in Texas this year, right? Nobody made any fruit in Texas this year. And that's true. None of our commercial orchards made any fruit, of course. But there were some olive trees in Texas that were left outside, uncovered and fully exposed to the winter uh, that did flower and set fruit in 2021. (laughs) And this is, uh, I actually went and saw these trees. I had to go see them and take pictures, right? It's the only olive fruit produced in Texas this year. Uh, It was four trees in large containers in Rockport, Texas, on a house that's right on the water, right on the bay, a south-facing patio that's all concrete with a hot tub, and those trees were left outside just exp- fully exposed and uncovered. Uh, but, of course, with the moderation from the gulf, with the heat from the, uh, from the surrounding concrete and the hot tub and the bay right there, those those trees survived and actually did flower and set some fruit in 21. So there was a little bit of fruit made this year, just a, just a handful, though, from some small potted trees. But I just thought that was interesting. So the big freeze, you know, really put a damper on a lot of us, and we really didn't know what to expect. I, of course, I stood up there in April at the field day. Uh, if you came to it, I stood up there for I, I don't know how many, how long it was—four hours or something. I stood up there and talked like I knew what was, what was going to happen and what should be done, but really I didn't know. Uh, but, but we all seemed to figure it out. Some people delayed pruning off the dead material until later in the year, June, July, August. Some people didn't still haven't pruned it till uh, even now at the end of the year. And some went ahead and pruned early March, April. Uh, and and across the state, I really don't see any difference in in pruning practices when we went in and removed that, that frost and freeze damaged uh, material and tissue. I really don't see a difference um, in folks that waited versus folks that did it yeah, a little bit earlier, so doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference as far as the survivability and regrowth of the tree. The only difference may be that waiting longer to, to start the pruning process gave you a better chance to see what was still alive, what was going to remain healthy, and where to make those pruning cuts to remove the, the dead and damaged wood uh, you know, there was a lot of trees that, that looked dead for March, April, May. They just weren't coming out. They weren't doing anything. You would swear they were dead. And then here they came, June, July, August, and they're putting out new growth. So what are some things that we can say we learned from this uh, freeze event that we experienced here in 2021 in and, of course, we've already talked about what could be done to prepare the trees, prepare the orchard, and mitigate freeze damage should it occur again. We've talked about that in past episodes, but what have we learned from the recovery process? And I think there's a couple of things that are worth mentioning here. One is that a tree that's showing green soon after the freeze may not actually be alive and survive long term. Uh, there was many cases where I would I was going around February and early March, uh, soon after the freeze, and, you know, everybody was out there scratching the trunks, right? We're scratching the bark, looking for that green cambium underneath, and that's supposed to give us some clue to, to the, the amount of damage or the potential survivability of that tree. And there was just lots of cases that we saw some green or some sort of yellow-green color sometime in those trees, and it seemed to last for a long time. Uh, we saw green cambium or yellow green colors in cambium uh, well into April, early May, mid May, and looking back now at the end of the year, that part of the tree that scratched that had some color to it, it never came out. It never it didn't survive. It was just sort of a slow, sort of a slow death for it. So one of the things I think we take away from this experience is that following a severe freeze like that, it's not always reliable to go out right away within the within the next following two, three, four weeks and start making decisions about what's alive and what's dead. And so then in order to, to know what we really have out there, we, we really need to wait in most cases to see what's actually going to survive. You know, we also saw trees that, let's say they died to the ground, they were totally top-killed, but they had regrowth coming out, some new suckers coming out from the roots or the lower part of the trunk. But too many times, I would say, I would say I saw it maybe 30% on average across the state where that new growth came out. And then we hit the heat of summer, July, August, and that, that, those suckers that did come out, they just wilted up and turned brown, died off, and the tree is completely dead now at the end of the year. And so that really complicates things for us, this, this delay and not really knowing what's going to actually live and survive and what's actually fully dead, what can we take out now, what should we wait on. I mean, we've learned that. That's what we figured out is that it, it's it, it's a delayed reaction and, and funny things can happen months later after the freeze. But that actually creates a problem for us trying to make some decisions. Should another freeze severe event like this happen in the future, it makes that decision hard. Should we go ahead and replant already or should we wait? You know, then if you wait to see what's actually going to survive, well you know, then you're, then you're just losing time. If you needed to order trees and you're waiting months to see what's going to survive, well, you're behind on ordering trees and getting the new trees put in. And so it just kind of cascades and goes down the pipe like that and, and creates problems for decision making and, and rehab and rehabilitation of the orchard. And a lot of you experienced that challenge. A lot of you did want to try to replace and replant some trees or part of the orchard or the whole thing or or just the dead trees. And that that made it difficult for you folks to figure out uh, how many trees you needed and when to make that call and when to when to say, well, that tree is, yeah, it's green, it's alive, but it's just not doing anything and it's just not worth keeping. And so it just, it just made it a challenge. And I'm, I'm not sure that there's any way that, that we can do any better than that. So even with this experience of living through and going through this severe freeze and, and seeing the damage and seeing the recovery and what happened with the trees... Even with this experience, I'm not sure that I'm any better prepared to go out next time and, and make uh, make the call. You know, oh, no, this is this orchard should be written off. All these trees are dead or no. All these trees are alive. Leave them leave them alone. You know, don't they don't need to be replaced. You don't need to order trees. I'm not sure that I could make that call if this does happen again. It just it was just so uh, so difficult to to predict. And so, of course, the experience was valuable, but I just don't know that we've really gained anything from it. Of course, i just going kind to of hope that it never happens again. So then as we start thinking forward and going through the rest of the year, you know, folks are out there and they're starting to prune and, and, and dig out dead trees and replace trees and start to, start to rehabilitate the orchard, turn the water back on, let's get them some water, some irrigation, some fertilizer. And my advice, and it seems that most folks uh, it did something similar to this. My advice as far as fertility was to, was to go easy on them. Uh, if you do have trees that survived and you're going to you know, regrow them, my advice was to take it easy and go light on the fertilizer, especially on the, on the nitrogen fertilizer, because an established tree that's gonna, that's been top-killed and is going to regrow entirely from the roots tends to be very vigorous even without uh, supplemental fertilization. And so the growers that I'm familiar with and that I talk to and, and, and who talked to me, um, generally, that was their practice. Uh, a light application of fertilizer or in, in the spring when we did see some life in these trees. And that seemed to be very sufficient. I, we had pretty good regrowth, um, you know, as I traveled around later later part of the year and saw the regrowth and recovery of the trees. Pretty good growth, uh, you know, in some cases. uh. A tree that was killed to the ground regrew six, seven feet. And of course, that's great. Um, a lot of cases we had less than that. And I think it also depended on the severity of the freeze and the severity of the damage at your location. But overall, on the trees that did survive, on the trees that we did keep, uh, we had pretty good recovery and regrowth on those. I, I would expect we'd. Most, in most cases, we're going to need one more year of recovery and regrowth on those suckers that we've selected and kept, and possibly by 2023, those could be ready to set some fruit. As I, as I talked about in the April field day, most everybody seems like if they did keep trees that were top-killed down to the ground, most everybody kept just one sucker. Uh, they would go through and and prune off the multitude of suckers coming out from the roots and select one or two and then often came back uh, before summer was over and 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 continue to thin those out and get it down to just one sucker. And so that's what the that's what a lot of us are dealing with now are suckers and you know suckers are a, are an interesting thing they're they're a different animal. Uh, what other cliche can I throw in to describe them, uh, you know, they're, they behave differently. I think they have um, different characteristics than the, the tree that you had before. And you can sort of see that phenologically as in, the, in the physical appearance of the tree. Uh, those suckers tend to have a different leaf shape. Uh, those leaves tend to be a little bit more narrow, a little bit shorter, a little bit more pointed. And all of those are characteristics of a juvenile tree. So, so when we think about trees and their development, you know, when you plant a seed, when that seed starts to grow and you have a seedling or a sapling tree, that sapling or seedling is juvenile. It's like a, it's like a, a, you know, a a young human. It's not fully developed and not uh, mature yet and cannot sexually reproduce because it's immature. And suckers tend to, tend to also behave like juveniles. And so that's going to be your job if you're dealing with suckers. That's going to be your job is to is to raise that juvenile, to raise that youngster, get them to mature out, um, and and get them ready to to reproduce uh, as soon as possible, right? And I'm going to talk more about that that process and and you know what what we should be doing, what we should be thinking about um, as far as regrowing these trees. I'm going to talk about that. Uh, Quite a bit more as we go forward. The next few episodes, and, and as we get into late winter and early spring, we're going to talk about all that. I'm going to hope to get you guys really geared up and hyped up and prepared to do do the best for your trees that you can possibly do. Let's see what else. Um, a few other problems I did notice. Uh, you know, again, I'm going to refer to to those orchards that had total top kill and regrowing trees from suckers. Uh, I saw not a huge problem, but a significant issue where the the new growth is coming on strong. Those new suckers are coming out nice and vigorous, and maybe we don't get them tied up to a stake in time, or the the tie breaks on the stake, or whatever the case may be. And and the the it seems as the union, the the joint between the sucker and the either the root or the lower part of the trunk, wherever that sucker originated from, that union seems to be weak and brittle and fragile. And so I saw quite a bit of suckers that we had start to regrow. They get two, three, four, four feet tall, and then the wind blows them over or something knocks them over, and they totally break off at the ground, and we're left with you know, left with nothing, restarting from zero. And so that's an issue, and that's another thing to learn is, is to get out there when we're dealing with suckers, I do think the suckers can be viable trees one day. But uh, we need to get out there early and, and really kind of baby them along. Again, they're the juveniles, so we can <laughs> metamorphosize here again a little bit. But they're juveniles, and they need some tender love and care right at first uh, to get uh, to get them and protect them until they do become strong and can stand on their own. So they, So we do need to get out there early. And get these trees securely tied up. And as those suckers continue to grow and continue to expand and, and, and elongate above where we've tied them to the stake, remember we got to go back and tie them again. You know, we really—if you really want the best for your orchard, and you really want the best orchard and the best chance for success—you really got to reach for that level of perfection. And you know, being a week late on getting out and retying trees, tying up the new growth. Yeah, you know, that can be the difference between a broken sucker or one that's gonna maybe produce fruit next year or the year after. So it's really all about reaching for that level of perfection, and that's a a theme that I'm probably gonna talk about uh, for the rest of this podcast. Uh, is is reaching for that level of perfection? And the end of summer wasn't too bad. Uh, not unseasonably hot. Not unseasoned. Not not uh, extremely dry. Not not anything unusual for Texas. I don't think. And then it seemed like we had a, a good start to a nice gradual transition to fall. And then we went back to summer, it seems. <laughs> I think we just recorded uh, and set several new records for the hottest temperature recorded on Christmas Day ever in Texas. I think there were several records set throughout throughout the state just recently here. And unfortunately, this unseasonably warm fall and, and early winter that we've been having it's just it's not what the what the olive doctor ordered not what the olive tree wants to uh, wants to experience I, I i've been out a little bit here um, i made a, a quick trip out west uh, in the at the end of november right before thanksgiving uh, i've made some local trips around me here here in december to look at some olives and a lot of them are still pretty actively growing they're really not They've slowed down in their growth, but they haven't completely stopped. They've got some new light green, tender leaves and tips on on some twigs where you can tell that they've made some growth recently. And that's just not ideal. Um, and we're going to talk in, in quite a bit more detail about dormancy in the next episode. And I'm looking forward to getting a few episodes out here fairly quickly in the next week or two. So, So stay tuned for those. And so that's a nice segue. I'm going to go ahead and leave it there for this episode. It's going to segue nicely into our next episode, and we're going to talk about dormancy, what is dormancy, and what, what influences dormancy, what we can do about it, and so on and so forth. That's going to be the next episode, then, is talking about dormancy. Uh, the the episode following that, I'm planning on talking more about winter and about vernalization, about the chilling requirements, the chilling needs, what actually happens in winter and and how and how important is it to convince the tree that once spring comes, it needs to set flowers and make fruit? So that's kind of what's on the plate. Talking about dormancy, I'm going to talk about chilling and vernalization, and uh, after that, we're going to go into what what to think about and look forward here in the spring. What to do for management for these orchards, uh, depending on your situation so with that i'm gonna sign out for 2021 it's been a heck of a year y'all thanks for hanging out with me thanks for supporting me as always i hope that i've helped some of you at least a little bit it's been a crazy year but you know if i've learned anything about you texas olive growers is that you're you're pretty darn resilient (laughs) you've got to be to be an olive farmer in texas you've got to be strong and resilient So I'm gonna leave it at that for 2021. Happy New Year's to everybody. Good luck in 2022. You guys take care of each other out there. Take care of those olive trees. And we'll talk to you again soon when it's time again for Growing Texas Olives.